Welcome to the Ministry Podcast. It is such a privilege that you would tune in. All of my content is designed to bring hope to the dreamers and doers that Jesus offers us a better way to life and Jesus offers us a better way to lead. I hope you enjoy today's episode. We're in Ephesians chapter 2, uh, 19 uh, through 22. And so let's start at verse 19. It says, So then, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with the saints. He's talking to you and to me and members of God's household. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. We're going to talk about that. With Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. That's how we will end. Verse 21. In him the whole building being put together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you are also being built together for God's dwelling in the spirit. I recognize there's a lot of Christian words here and I'm just so excited. It took me, I labored over this text, but I really believe this is exactly what we need to hear in our current cultural moment. The title of today's message is Hypocrites or Heretics. Hypocrites or heretics. Let's pray. Father God, I'm so grateful for your grace and for your mercy. I just pray that we just feel your presence tonight. Um, God, as I received some, some texts and phone calls today of people saying, I'm just a little bit under the weather. I don't want to risk it. God, I, I praise you for that. I praise you that our church has just been playing this uh, safe and, and making sure we're not putting each other's health in jeopardy. But God, I just pray for a covering over our church family and their family. I just pray that you would give us good health uh, keep us protected. Um, God, for tonight, I ask you that Ephesians 2, uh, may you preach this passage tonight, God, the way that you've used it the last 2,000 years, and that's drawing people to yourself and making much of you, King Jesus. We want to do the exact same. In Jesus' name I pray. Everybody says? Amen. 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 Hypocrites or heretics. About 100 years ago, uh, maybe you've heard of this in your history classes, was the Scopes trial. Uh, the Kind of the, the street way to say it was the monkey trial. And this was of the guy's, the teacher, this high school teacher, his last name was Scopes. He was a younger high school teacher, and he started teaching without anybody's approval the theory of evolution. And so a hundred years ago, it wasn't accepted like it is now as far as in the public school system. This was a shock. And so people got very upset. The parents got together, and it was a huge court case. What, what happened is what's happening to us with all these cultural things going on, people began to look at the church and they were demanding every pastor, where do you stand? Are you for evolution being taught in school or are you against? This is a little side caveat. I think it's so funny. My professor uh, at CBU, be mad at him if this angers you. He said, next time somebody, uh, this is, I shouldn't, but anyway, I'm doing it. Uh, He said, next time somebody is mad that they took down the Ten Commandments in the school, ask them what the Ten Commandments are. It's usually those who are mad about that who don't even know what the, so you need to put it up in your head. I love, okay, moving on. So, two factions occurred. Two, Two extremes were birthed from this Scopes trial. This is, again, in the 1920s, just 100 years ago. You had the modernist, and then you had the fundamentalist, which the fundamentalist took the fun out of fundamental. Okay, so the modernists, they viewed this as an opportunity to be seen as loving. And so they said, of course, we approve. We're okay with evolution being taught in school. And so these modernist churches grew overnight. I mean, they were starting to build buildings. Um, They didn't have enough room to fit everybody in because everyone was saying, finally, a church that seems welcoming to different things. And they were the tolerant ones. 
Then you had the fundamentalists. And the fundamentalists saw this as an opportunity to be truthful. So they did not grow overnight, but those who were at the church were very proud to be at this church because they were sticking up for truth. Well, the court ruled against evolution, but as you know, it's being taught now today. But the church really lost in the courtroom of opinion because of the way they handled this. See, the modernists eventually became heretics because they started to remove parts of the Bible. They started to say, well, let's not teach Genesis one. Let's not do this. Let's not do that. And so they kept, what, what do you want to hear? We'll preach it. And eventually it got to the point where they're preaching, you don't need church. So guess what? The next week, nobody showed up. If you're preaching, you don't need us, then they're not going to come, right? And so the modernists died overnight, eventually died off. And those churches are no longer to be found, although they've been rebirthed in different versions. That is for sure. Uh, but that's what happened to them. The fundamentalists they became hypocrites because they, instead of removing parts of the Bible, they kind of got into this rhythm of removing parts of society. They started saying, we're, not, we're only going to buy Christian mints, we're only going to go get Christian movies, and we're going to get away from all those bad people in society. And what happened, again, this is, this is broad brushes here. Of course, there's people in the middle, but I'm talking about the two extremes here. What happened is those churches knew what they were against, but they didn't know what they were for. And so in reality, the modernist church and the fundamental church were not following the way of Jesus. See, here's the reality. Church is really, let me, let me zero this down to you. The Christian faith is easy when it's the majority opinion. It gets a lot harder when it's not. It's not anymore, okay? So what do we do? I actually think this passage tonight tells us exactly how we need to wade through these cultural waters. If we follow Jesus carelessly, we will fall easily into hypocrisy or heresy. I want you to write this down. Only the way of Jesus can balance the friction between cooperation and conviction. This is exactly what happened, right? It was the modernists who said, okay, let's get rid of conviction, Let's cooperate with society. Let's look as loving. Jesus was love after all. And so let's do that. Well, then you have the fundamentalists. They love their convictions. And actually the five fundamentals we believe in as well. It's just the way they carried it out was wrong because they thought the only solution was to get rid of cooperation. And that led them to being hypocrites because they would talk about how Jesus was the way, the truth, the life. Jesus is love, but yet they did not love their neighbor. They only allowed certain people into the church doors. And maybe you grew up going to one of those churches. And maybe even tonight, this is your first time in a long time. Because for too long, you have experienced either the church that is just always looking to cooperate. But you're thinking, you're not here to change the world. You're here to be just like it. And I get that already. Or you've been at a church that's all about conviction. And they're not fun to be around. And so I hope that we are actually something altogether different. Jesus, it says that he was full of grace and full of truth. Notice it wasn't 50% grace, 50% truth. It depends who I'm talking. No, full and full, right? Full of grace, full of truth. Enter the letter uh, to Ephesus uh, by Paul. I think this will be a really helpful way for us to examine this. Um, we're going to first, I, I want you to, let me read it again, uh, just to make sure that we're seeing the imagery here. I want you to notice the imagery of what we have about cooperation, the imagery 
of the church. Again, in verse 19 of chapter 2, it says, So then you are no longer foreigners and strangers. That's good news. You, we have to remember, he's really even talking primarily to the Gentiles because they were used to not being in the covenant with God. The whole Old Testament is about the Jewish people. But fellow citizens with the saints and members, look, members of God's household. Talking about the family. This is an image he's pointing at. Verse 20, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. That's actually the New Testament writings or even really all of the Bible with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. And here's the next piece of imagery. In him, the whole building being put together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. So he actually is, is going back and forth with these two ideas, cooperation and conviction. Paul gives three images about cooperation, how we're all together as a family, and he points to two sources concerning our conviction. You with me? No. Okay. All right. Now, first point or the next point or whatever. Let's talk about without cooperation. Without cooperation, our convictions turn into evictions, meaning your faith turns into who is not allowed, who are we going to kick out? And Paul wants to make sure we don't have that mentality. He wants to make sure that we are a unified body. I think it's helpful, these three images of the body of Christ, um, because when you're in ministry or just in church life in general, it gets really hard because so much of church is in the invisible realm. Amen? It's so much of like, I don't know if that person just has a face that never looks happy or if he's not happy. You know what I'm saying? Like sometimes, like you're, you know, your studying face is like this and I'm like thinking, does he hate me or love me? I don't know. Who cares? Right? So I do care. Um, and so I love how there's these tangible pictures of the church because so many times, me and my dad, we pour concrete as, as another part of our, we do that on the side and it's nice because we can build something, we actually saw it and then we move on. Here we're like, is it being built? I don't know. I don't, you know what I'm saying? Anyways, so he has these three images of the church. And I want you to notice, actually, each metaphor uh, really intensifies our unity. So the first one he talks about in verse 19 is we are citizens. So he's saying we have this common bond. When I go to Malaysia, if I meet somebody from New York City, I feel like, man, we're together. We're Americans, right? So we start talking about American food and all this stuff. But if I meet a New Yorker in Arizona, I'm like, you're not us. You know what I'm saying? Like, you know. Who are you? You know what I'm saying? So it actually depends. But he's saying we're citizens. So it's like this common bond. So we're out where there's strangers, where there's foreigners. And yet there's like that salt and light, right? It's like we are connected here. And so you feel that common bond. He's saying that, that is so good. But I can just imagine Paul's writing this letter and he's thinking, okay, the citizens. That's, by the way, this is powered by the Holy Spirit. But he's like, let's do something even, even deeper than that. And so then he talks about how we are in the household of God. He references us as family. I think what he's saying here, okay, he's trying to make us even more unified. He says, not only are we a part of the same city, but also we, we have the same father. And so we have the same dad. And so we're brothers and sisters in Christ. And we're going to look at who is a brother and sister and who's not. That's going to be uh, when we talk about conviction. And then he talks about the stones, this building. What he's saying, it's even more unified. Not only are we the same city, not only are we the same family, but here's the reality. In family, you can live in different houses, you can move away, all this stuff. But now we're the same structure. We are individual stones in the temple of the Lord, meaning you can't have you without the others. You can't follow Jesus on your own. Dwight L. Moody. You guys ever heard of Dwight L. Moody? He was an evangelist in the 1800s, super famous. I think uh, his ministry eventually led to Billy Graham getting saved. But anyways, he was invited to a man's house. Uh, this is a lot of times with preachers. Uh, sometimes when you get invited to a home, you're nervous because there was one time, pastor's kid, and uh, there was like 
rotten milk spilt on the floor from like four weeks ago. And she invited us to their house. We ate like right by them. I'm like, do you hate us? Anyways, so you're just a little bit hesitant and you don't know the agenda. And so this man, uh, he, he tells the story, invited him and started the fireplace. And he's thinking, I'm going to be here for a while. You know, he started the fireplace, let, let's talk. And so they started talking theology. And you could tell what he really wanted to talk about was the church. And what he wanted to talk about was that the church isn't needed. That ah, you can follow Jesus in private. And so I love Dwight, Moody, Dwight L. Moody. He, uh, he was at the fireplace and he had his little stick. And, and he was listening to him talk and letting him ramble on and ramble on. And he took one coal and he got it away from all the other coals. And he, and he put it all by itself. And all he did was just stare at that coal as it withered and died away. And he just kept staring at it. And then the man said... Okay, I get your point. <laughs> I, that's so cool. Okay, I wish I could do that. Invite me to your house, make sure there's fire there. Okay, and so I love that picture there. Sure, are you saved alone? Sure, but look, this is a beautiful thing. We are together, and we are so much better together, which is like such a phrase every pastor uses. I'm so sorry I did it again, though. Better together. But here's why I know a lot of us get a little bit nervous when it comes to cooperation. We get nervous because we feel we're going to get abused in the family of God or we're going to be looked over or it's going to be like a cookie cutter system and you're going to be just kind of ignored. Here's, I think, the best way for us to really understand um, how we need to cooperate, how we are together. We are different and dependent. I want to explain that. This is crucial for understanding cooperation, and this is cooperating with us as the family of God, the local church here, but also as we cooperate with the four different churches that meet in this building, the different denominations, all sorts of stuff, right? I think it's really helpful. In the name of unity, which can we say? We need unity today. Amen? The church needs to be unified. And what we don't get is this. Okay, so let's get it. We are different and we are dependent. What, what is different? Each metaphor here uh, recognizes our uniqueness. And so it talks about, um, you know, as a citizen, you are one citizen among many other citizens, but it isn't like you're still you. Even the family, you're going to have brothers and sisters, but you are uniquely you. And also, and corporately, um, you know, like with, there's in, in practical applications like denominations, right? Denominations are different and that's helpful. But I'm grateful for some denominations like ours, uh, the Baptist uh, tradition. Uh, We stress evangelism. I'm super grateful for that. Uh, We are very passionate about evangelism. Other different tribes, other different denominations stress worship. Others, liturgy, um, which some of half the room doesn't know what that is. That's fine. It's, the other half is just terrified because you heard that word your whole life. Others stress systematic theology. And it's really helpful because we are different. We are unique. And one of the biggest unlocks for me as a pastor is recognizing one of my primary jobs is to spend time learning your differences and ministering to how God is forming you uniquely. Who in here is, I should ask it this, who's an extrovert? Because you're willing to raise your hand. Anybody here an extrovert? Okay, wow. Um, That's why nobody feeds back. Well, who's introvert, right? The rest of us, we're like, Okay, um, it's kind of funny because yeah, I'm an introvert. I it's it's more about how do you how do you receive uh, energy? It's when I'm not around you. Okay, um, no, I'm just kidding. That's that's no, I I missed you during the quarantine, but 
Yeah. Okay, so the other thing, we're different. We're unique. What are some other ways that we're different? We've been talking about this in our apprentice workshop. I think it's really helpful. There's some of us here during the first half of our spiritual life, not our real, like not, not the physical life, um, but I'm saying maturity-wise, some of us are in the beginning steps. And so when I'm ministering to you, I, I won't say, okay, what you need is silence and solitude. I think that's somebody who's a little bit further down the road. I would say for you especially, let's just talk about how do we read our Bibles and how do we pray out loud? Let's just start there, very simple. How do you attend? How do you stay committed to attending every week? But then the second half of spiritual life, you actually lean into more what we call the releasing practices where you actually have silence and solitude, where you have actually longer periods of prayer, where you begin to teach and lead other people. There's all sorts of things. We're in different stages of our lives. Some of us are married. Some of us are single. Some are widows. Some of you, you're very structured. In everything you do, you have a to-do list. And so as a pastor, we try to help you a little bit with that. Okay, if you're structured, here's the structure of how we're doing ministry. Some of you are just spontaneous. Don't give me a structure at all, right? And so, and so we have to be mindful of that. The last thing a, a spontaneous person needs is a one-year Bible reading plan. Or maybe he does. It all depends. You get it? So what we're passionate about is personalizing the way of Jesus. So these stones, these brothers, these, it, you're a part of something bigger, but you are unique. Only you have your family background. Only you have your particular wounds and, and, and wickedness uh, that, that manifest within you. And so like that phrase, you know, what would Jesus do? I think a better way to phrase it is what type of person would Jesus be if he were me? I think that's what we need to ask. Okay, I am not a Jewish rabbi, right, from 2,000 years ago. So I can't be him exactly. So if, if Jesus had my set of parents, how would I look like Jesus? Does that make sense? If Jesus was in my neighborhood, in my context, with my upbringing, with my passions, how would Jesus display himself to this world? Only you have your own unique Enneagram, right? And Myers-Briggs and all those things. I, want to, I need to move forward. But you are different. And that's a good thing. And I think God really wants to help you understand that. And I think we get so discouraged. We see um, like the, the, the type, uh, type three who reads their Bible Every year, the one-year reading Bible plan, they never miss. And a four gets tremendously discouraged from that because that's the last thing he wants to do. But then he feels like a failure. No, there is a unique way for you to commune with God. Made my point yet? Move on, Trey. I will. All right. We are different, but we're also dependent. Each metaphor here recognizes our uniqueness, but also recognizes our reliance. It's being a family, we need you. The brothers and sisters, we need to be a part of this family. To the stones, if you take one stone out, you know, in essence, the, the building isn't as stable. And so what this means for us, we are dependent, as, as Baptists, we're dependent on other denominations. We cannot save this world, right? We need other Christian brothers and sisters who have different backgrounds. Here's what it means individually. We're dependent and something I think we need to do a better job of at our church. I love that we're on this journey together to recognize our own uniqueness. But I really think for some of us to grow even further, the introverts need to hang out more with the extroverts. And the extroverts need to hang out more with the introverts. Because here's the thing. Extroverts, when you take this application, you have an action. You have somebody to share with, somebody to love, somebody to serve. That action is great. Introverts, you come up with something to of a reflection. You have something to think about about God now. 
You have a way to thank him even more. And so the reality is the extroverts need more reflection in their life. And the introverts need to do more in their life. Amen? So we actually help each other. So the, spontane- the spontaneous people need some structure. And the structure people need to be a little bit spontaneous. And so when we begin to gather together in growth groups, when we minister to each other before and after service and talk about life, these are ways we're dependent on each other or else, um, Robert Mulholland calls it, we begin to develop a shadow side. There is a side of us that is under-nurtured. God created you to be a whole person, amen? God created you to have, for, to have action and reflection. And so reality is, is we, if we have a shadow side, that will show up in all sorts of uh, uh, sinful ways. That will show up where you're not enjoying the presence of God as much. I need to move forward, but that's really important. So when it talks about how we're different, our church, we say a lot, we are personalizing the way of Jesus, Okay. It's so millennial of me to say that, but we are personalizing it just for you. Amen? But we're also dependent, and I looked it up. It doesn't sound like a word, but it is a word. We are communalizing the way of Jesus, and that is what we're called to do. Robert Mulholland and his book, um, uh, Invitation to a Journey, he calls it uh, the shadow side, the people who are opposite of us. He calls them um, God's troubling grace. So if your wife's complete opposite of you, just tonight be like, babe, you're my troubling grace. Amen? Amen, right? We are each other's troubling grace. It pushes us, it makes us uncomfortable, but in reality, it's what actually makes us more and more like him. So again, we can cooperate a whole lot more. We can be in the family when we recognize we are different and we are dependent. We need each other. That even in our city, our church alone cannot save everybody. We are dependent on the other churches who are gospel-believing in this city. I don't listen to him ever, but he had a quote one time, and I always remembered it. Um, T.D. Jakes, he said, We have to be careful that our preferences don't turn into our prejudices. I thought that was good. We have to be careful not to allow our preferences to turn into our prejudices. And I think a lot of us, we miss out on the family of God because we've gotten a little bit too preferential and we have not allowed the troubling grace of God to enter into our life in the form of other human beings. Thanks, Ron. All right, let's go to the next one. So the next obvious question is, as you're thinking, okay, we need to cooperate, but what is not worth cooperating with? Where is the line we have to draw? When are they no longer family and when do we need to separate? Verse 19, uh, really verse 20, answers that. It says, Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. Again, the the apostles and prophets are referencing, um, one could argue, the New Testament, uh, or maybe even the whole Bible, all the scriptures together. I believe there were 13 apostles. Um, Judas Iscariot was one, and uh, his story didn't end well. So then they replaced him with Matthias in Acts, and then you actually have Paul, which we believe Paul was an apostle because Jesus uh, met him on the road to Damascus. And so being an apostle means you had to have, have been in, in, in like physical contact with King Jesus and empowered by the Spirit. And so there's 13 apostles. And so through those apostles, we have the writings of the New Testament, which is why if somebody writes a new book and say it's part of the Bible, we're like, no, okay, you weren't with Jesus during that time. You were not an apostle. You're crazy, okay? And so uh, here's the best way for us uh, to understand this. Look, Without conviction, here's the warning. Here's what's scary. 
if we don't have any conviction, our cooperation turns into compromise. And this is a very scary thing too. And so I know some of you, some, maybe some older generations have seen the church, and we see it now, churches have compromised and they wind up losing their identity altogether. What's funny is we try to be so, uh, so great, so, um, so receivable to the world that when they receive it, it actually doesn't change their life at all because the cross is foolish, right, to those who don't believe. There is, there is something about it that if you don't believe in the way of Jesus, uh, it's not comfortable. And there's many, many topics in today's society, um, specifically sexuality, right? People are asking, what is your view on sexuality? And according to the Bible, I think we don't do the best job presenting it. I think we need to start with the image of God. I need, we need to start from a position of love. Um, but there are certain ways God's designed us. And we need to stick to that conviction because when we begin to compromise an area of theology, at what point do we stop compromising? And we wind up tearing the Bible altogether. I've been into American history a lot since I watched Hamilton. Anybody seen Hamilton? Oh. Um, anyway, and so Thomas Jefferson, literally, he, he, he cut out portions of the Bible that he didn't believe in. Right? That's a bit upsetting. And so we don't want to get to that point. So what are ways that we can see to make sure that we have conviction with cooperation? We don't want to compromise. Here's, here's the next set of truths, I think. We are, this is the church at large, the church throughout history, anybody who believes in King Jesus, we are consistent and repentant. These two are so, think of it like on a bike. These two things, these two pedals go together. When one stops, the whole thing doesn't go as fast. I don't know, I'm done with the bike illustration. Okay, so consistent. This is why he says the foundation so we are the stones, we're the, we, we are the building, but the foundation, if you don't have the foundation right, your house will fall, which is why we're in the concrete business. We'll do the foundation for you. Amen. Praise God. All right. So with the foundations important, it is the writings of the New Testament. It's the gospel. Read the gospels, read the whole New Testament. You have different perspectives, but it's always a consistent objective. It's always about King Jesus, amen? It's always about us that we're sinners, that we need to repent, but he's offering us a whole new way of life, a way of flourishing. And so every single book in the Bible, even the Old Testament, points to that reality. Something that's been really helpful for me to understand. At what points do we need to be consistent in? And other points, are do we have wiggle room and, and we're willing to change our views about things in the Bible? And so... Um, my wife, she was, uh, she's a PCA, so she's in the hospital world, and, and they talk about a triage. And, and really what it is, you have to determine quickly, if there's a lot of people who are sick, you have to determine the level of severity. And so if somebody just has a sore foot and someone else lost an, I don't know, I'm bad at this, lost a left arm, I think you're going to say, okay, I know the sore foot person came in first, but we're prioritizing these, these things differently, okay? The whole world doesn't revolve around you, okay? Put some ice on it, and here's $650 bill just for saying hi to us, amen? Praise God. That was a little too personal. That's exactly how much I had to pay for a few weeks ago. So you have this theological triage. Not every issue is of utmost importance. Can I say that? Not everything in the Bible is like, you have to do this. And I think this is where a lot of fights happen. We're fighting over stupid stuff, like the color of the carpet, right? Let's figure out what's worth fighting for. And so he has this first tier issues, second tier, and third tier issues. First tier are hills that you die on. 
These are the ones have always been consistent. We consider them orthodox of the church. If you step away, you turn into a heretic, okay? What are some of them? It's Jesus. He's fully God and fully man. You have a lot of heresies that try to, try to take away either or. And if I had enough time, I, I can explain. When you take out just one or the other, everything unravels. Everything. Fully God, absolutely perfect, holy, righteous, fully man, suffered, was tempted, went through everything like you and I did. And he rose again. He has a physical body. It wasn't some holographic thing, hologram, I don't know, right? This is reality. We have to know that. People try to say that he's a brother of Satan. People try to say that he wasn't from eternity past, that God created him. All those things are wrong. With that, God is Trinity. This one's hard. I have some some good friends who don't believe in the Trinity. And I've just been trying to tell them throughout church history, like you're actually considered a heretic. I'm sorry. Because here's why. One example, there's a great book by Michael Reeves about the Trinity. I thought it was so helpful. He said, it's so important for us to understand that God is Trinity because that means God has always been community. God has always had the Son and the Spirit and the Father. They've all been dwelling in perfect unity together. And therefore, when he created us, he did not create us because he was lonely. That's important. If he was lonely, he either created us to be slaves or he needs us. And we have to perform for him in order for him to be happy. No, he is Trinity. He has always dwelt in community. He has always dwelt. He has been content from eternity past to eternity future. It's just out of his abundant grace and desire that he created us. Amen. The Trinity is very important. And, and, and don't let one two-minute YouTube video change your mind on the Trinity. Okay? Read it. Study it wrestle with it. At our church, we will not be mad at you for doubting. Doubt, what I say, don't drive out the doubt, but don't let the doubt drive you out, right? Allow these things to be wrestled with, and you'll find even better conclusions. A few more. We're justified by faith alone. That is a hill I will always consistently die on. I will never budge. Why? We're, we just talked about Ephesians 2, 8, 9. It's by grace that we're saved through faith. It's not by our works so that nobody can boast. That's incredibly important. Uh, one more is the authority of God's word. From Genesis 1 to maps, amen, right? This is God's word. This is his perfect and holy word. Now, are, do we have interpretation errors? Absolutely. That's why we try to read from church history. It's why we try to read commentaries. It's why we try to get a little bit of everything, understand other people's perspectives, and that helps us get to a clear position. I need to keep moving. Second tier issues. I would consider this where we're still family, still brothers and sisters. We're still stones in the structure of the temple, but we live in different houses. All right. We have just enough differences where it's like, I'll see you later. You know what I'm saying? Like, we'll see you at lunch, but I need to go to my church. What are some of those? Um, This can be controversial, I suppose, but mode of baptism. So like uh, I was just talking about before the service, Tim Keller, I think is like the best human that's uh, on the planet currently. Okay. I love Tim Keller. But he has one thing wrong. He baptizes infants. It's okay. We're all wrong somewhere. No, it's okay. So, so he baptizes infants. I convictionally, as I read the Bible, I don't believe, I, we dedicate our children. But I believe uh, in the believer's baptism. You have to make a personal, right, personal response to salvation. And then you get baptized. I believe in that. I don't want to give people false security, all those things. But Tim Keller disagrees with me. And I forgive him for that. But anyways, because of that, we're, it's enough of a difference where we go to different churches. But I will partner with him with pretty much everything, okay? I just want his autograph. But anyways, um, we will do ministry work together, pray together. I go to all of his conferences. 
If you guys have connections, let me know. Um, another thing is gender roles. This one's really big. And this one is a one that we wrestle with a lot. What can a woman do and can't do? What can a man do and can't do? And I think some people take it way too far. They look at Ephesians 5 and they say, okay, women should bow down to all men. I think that's actually talking about marriage here. And so you need to just stop acting like you're every lady's boss. You're weird. That's why you don't have a wife. You know what I'm saying? So all this stuff. But there are things, honestly, that it's kind of hard to, to reconcile with, right? And so those are things that I think are worth wrestling with. But here's the thing. I hold these second-tier issues with an open hand. I'm willing to, to hear the other side out and just say, God, if I need to repent of something and change, I will. You got it? Um, a church polity is another one. So congregational vote. Praise God we don't do that anymore. Um, but, you know, it's like elder-led, which we vote in. Anyways, there's, there's ways. I just think... Um, the congregational vote on a lot of issues, like you've heard about it for two minutes and now you're going to like determine our future, even though we've been praying about this for six months, but whatever. Uh, and so you have some people, it's like only congregational. We actually do believe congregation has authority. You can fire me. So there you go. Have fun with that. Um, shoot. I, I really opened up a can of worms on that one. Um, but there's other people that don't agree with that. There's all sorts of different church polity. Last one, third tier is the things you disagree with, but you're in the same church together. Should I wear a mask or not? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? But we'll still be family. Sadly, churches are dividing over that issue. That is not a first, that is not of utmost importance. Politics, I would say, are a third tier issue in many ways. There's a lot of things, gospel freedom issues. Some here in this room believe that you can drink, others in this room have the conviction that it's, you, you shouldn't. I think we can all dwell together as a family still. And be in the same local church. And by the way, even you're wrestling with certain second tier things. I think we could still be in the local, same local church as we're trying to figure this thing out together. And of course, I put in the color of carpet in your church. Some people divide over that. And uh, praise God, this isn't orange. Amen. Who loved the 70s? All right. We are consistent, but we're also repentant. What does that mean? Our doctrine is marked by humility and gentleness. What this means, again, with second-tier issues, I am willing to be wrong on them. My first step is not anger and let me prove you wrong. My first step will always be, I would love to hear you out. I want to read about the church history perspective of this. I want to read a systematic theology. I'm going to call my professor, right? All these things. But I want to wrestle with these things. And and I think it's really helpful. I was reading uh, Isaiah 66 too. Such a good verse. It says, I will, God is saying this, I will look favorably on this kind of person. That's when you lean in. God's going to look favorably on me. How? One who is humble, submissive in spirit, and trembles at my word. I love that. What that means, our doctrine, first and foremost, is that of humility. And we're willing to say, I was wrong. But not flippantly. It's a thing that we wrestle with. Here's why scripture is so hard to understand. There are four ways you interpret the Bible. It's scripture by reading it, tradition or culture, reason, your own mind and thoughts, and experience. When somebody tells you, I'm a biblicist, okay, that sounds amazing. But you're influenced by people, whether you like to admit it or not. I don't follow Calvin, I follow the Bible. Sounds awesome, but you follow somebody else because someone else taught you, okay? Now, Bible is of utmost importance, amen. But here's the thing, tradition or culture. 
makes certain doctrines hard to swallow. For us in our current moment about ladies in leadership, that's a hard one for us because of our culture. Other cultures, they don't bat an eye about that. In fact, they probably should, right? But, but and, and the wrath of God. There's countries, uh, third world countries. They're like, of course God has wrath. Here? What? How can God have wrath? There's no way. I don't believe in that God, right? It's the way we were raised. It's the culture. A reasoning that helps or hurts us at times. We have to understand in Isaiah, his ways are higher than ours. And experience, I'm not going to lie, if you grew up with an authoritative figure that was abusive, of course you're going to struggle with authority. Amen, right? Man, I have to hurry. Okay, so we have to be consistent and repentant. Here is a great quote. I think it's helpful. In reality, Christians do not think alike on all issues. Did you know that? Even your wife or your spouse or your, your neighbor or your roommate or whatever. And history reveals that when cooperation trumps conviction, the church loses its prophetic edge. Conversely, he was my professor. I love Dr. Shoot. I texted him yesterday. I said, I'm using your, I'm, yeah, anyway. Okay. Conversely, he's been to our church before. When narrow convictions prevent broad-based cooperation, the church misses the mark of love. Do you see only the way of Jesus can balance the friction between cooperation and conviction? And that's why here in the scriptures it says, and Jesus is the cornerstone, meaning Jesus is the first and he is the one who sets forth the whole design of the building. Without the cornerstone, there is even no foundation, right? How is Jesus the foundation for us? Please give me the grace and let me just uh, borrow a couple more minutes from you. Number one, throughout church, you see in the Old Testament and the New Testament, we see Jesus as a prophet. Jesus as prophet, look, as prophet, Jesus confronts us with his truth. When we wrestle with ideas, we have to remember Jesus is a God who calls us to repent. He confronts us. You need to hear that he's a loving God, absolutely. But you also, we have to recognize we're not always right. And Jesus convicts us. He confronts us through his word and through his community. Amen. Thank you. All right. Now, as priest, Jesus comforts us with his life. I love it. The, the prophet says, you need to go there. And the priest says, and I will go with you. The priest walks alongside of you. Jesus, did you know he is daily, he's praying for you right now. Says in the scriptures, he is constantly interceding for you. I love that. Jesus is praying for me. Because he he comforts us. He has suffered like we have. You've been betrayed, he has been betrayed. You feel like your temptation, you can't run out of it. Jesus was tempted by the devil himself. Here's another quote I thought was so good. I don't know how to say the name. Frederica Carney. Okay, it says this. Our challenge is not only to recognize injustice, oppression, propaganda, mind domination. This is what prophets do. They call this out, which YouTube is full of those right now. All right? Now, with enough outrage, we have to be bothered to prompt deep concern. That's for the introverts. And action. Extroverts. Right? We got to do both. But... To do so without a measure of hatred, disdain, or contempt. That is when the priesthood of Jesus ushers us, where we stick for truth, but we also stick with love. We have convictions, but we also cooperate. We have cooperation. Last one, as king, Jesus commands us to go his way. Ultimately, even if it doesn't make sense to me, 
I am loyal to King Jesus, and so I trust him and do what only he can do. You recognize this is hard to balance all of these truths. This is hard for us to have conviction and cooperation. And one more quote. This is talked about. It's like about paradox. The Christian faith so often is this paradox. Be fully truthful, fully loving at the same time. Go ahead, brother. It's like, how do I do that, right? Here's this. Heretics, which we talked about before, right? Heretics reject paradox in favor of a false clarity and precision. But true faith, I know a lot of us, how can, I, how can I balance these two together? Is this really a real faith? No, true faith can only grow and mature if it includes the elements of paradox and creative doubt. Without such creative doubt, look, religion, like the fundamentalist, becomes hard and cruel. Like secularism degenerating into the spurious security with, which breeds, look, intolerance and persecution. Welcome to 2020, all right? Here's where we're at, and there is a faith. They may not say they follow anything, but the faith that is predominant today is a religion that rejects paradox. Everything's black and white, and it is leading to intolerance and persecution. And we ought not get our pitchforks and be mad at them. We respond full of grace, full of truth. We respond with conviction and cooperation because only the way of Jesus can balance the friction between cooperation and conviction. We find joy in the paradox of being different and dependent. We find joy in the paradox of being consistent and repentant. 